Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> yes. Welcome. Welcome, my friends, <laughs> to the show. Here we go. It's Felix and Al coming on back on a beautiful day with my pal. Yeah. Everybody listen, listen up. We got some words in a cup. Just drink them down and go for a ride through your mind every time. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Never know where that's going to go. That's Im the best part of improvisation. it. Improvisation. Yeah. It is, it is, it's a real journey into the unknown. You know, I was in a rap group uh, in the early 2000s. You knew, I think I told you this. A-Bay? Well, that's my rap name, yeah, A-Bay. What was your rap group called? Uh, we were 3WB. 3WB, where did that name come from? <laughs> it's the stupidest name. It, it's three white boys. But there were only two of us because the third guy pretty much left after the first song recorded. But we we recorded two albums and it was basically we would get on GarageBand, make a beat, and then improvise raps. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So how can we find these these tapes? Uh, on one of my hard drives. <laughs> my friend Blake and I, who I did it with, we've been talking about putting it on, like Spotify or some something, just to Sweet. have it out there. Isn't Blake? He's a DJ as well, right? Uh, no, that's my other friend. That's Jake. 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 Blake, Blake and Jake. Yeah. Yeah. So, how's it going, buddy? Great, man. Well, took a long motorcycle ride today up into the mountains. Yeah. Had a beautiful view of the valley. I got really high <laughs> up in the air. Not actually high. But it was very, like, it was almost a high. Uh-huh. You know, when you hit higher altitudes, you start to feel, like, almost blissfully, I don't I, I personally feel very blissful. That perfect lack of oxygen where yeah. it's just... Not really breathing. Your so brain isn't quite functioning, so you just... So it stops, and then you feel bliss because the mind causes all our suffering. And <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> we, just, we should all just climb mountains. Maybe that's why yogis and gurus climb mountains. That's why they're way up there. Whoa. So they're kind of cheating. It's like a performance enhancement. That's, that's a bit genius. I want to see those yogis and gurus like go down to Death Valley and s see if they can... Achieve samsa or samadhi in the lowest places in the earth. Give them the opposite environment and see if their samadhi holds strong. Uh huh. Yeah. Have you ever been there, Death Valley? I haven't. Oh man, it's cool, man. It's like it. It feels like the hell, basically. It's like if hell had a landscape. That's what it is. But in a just fucking hot. I mean, I've been there in the summer. It's just 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 heat and there's nothing growing and it's just so hard and dramatic and huh. it's intense man so hell well maybe hell wouldn't be beautiful so <laughs> but it, it's just very dramatically intense that's more food for thought though would would hell be beautiful <laughs> huh would hell be beautiful well i just think by its very definition it couldn't be unless you're yeah probably not yeah unless you it's it's got to be hell it's, gonna be it's got yeah if it's beautiful then it's, it's maybe not. one man's hell is another man's heaven you know wow 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm you turn have, my chair. You on. have a a horrible life, and you love death and destruction, and uh, your hell would be <laughs> paradise. <laughs> so hell, heaven is people's hell. Some people's hell. Yeah. I like that idea. One man's trash is another man's treasure. That's right. Okay, so now we are We're just getting situated here. When we open with that song, we have to have a different configuration in order to get the guitar on the microphone. We're still in the early stages of our professional setup. I, I, man, I like our studio, man. I it's love outdoor our studio. studio. We can smoke in here. We can smoke our mapachos. We have a view of a mountain. View of a mountain, nice breeze. It's about uh, 4.20. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Talking about getting high. Yeah. I had a dream about getting high. Yeah. Share about that, man. I don't remember the entire dream, but I remember smoking with some friends, and all of a sudden, there's a strange place between being sober and being really high, like scary high. But when I smoked before, like a long time ago, I used to smoke a lot. So I would, I loved that space. And so in the dream, I hit that space and I just started geeking out and giggling and hee hee hee, I'm so high. <laughs> kind of like Mr. Tally from South Park. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think it was like, it was the plant visiting you and saying, hey man, don't forget about me. Don't forget about the weed, man. <laughs> I, I wonder if it was symbolic of today. Of actually going up and getting ah, high, because uh-huh. it's funny. I was using that, that those words when I even when I was talking to Saf. I'm like, man, we're so high right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I giggle because I think it's funny, and it's beautiful up there. So it was. Yeah. So it was like a pre- premonition dream. Yeah, it was, it was like smoking weed but driving on a motorcycle. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome. I've never, well, I've tried to drive a motorcycle, but man, you drive great. Yeah, all the motorcycle, all my old motorcycles, you were driving around the neighborhood like they were. Like you've ridden before. Yeah. I mean, I took less when I lived in Africa, I took lessons. Uh, but on one of my lessons, uh, my teacher took me back home and I rode on the back seat and we ran over a little dog and we fell off and I got burned by the motorcycle oh. and twisted my thing and the dog. And yeah, so had a little motorcycle trauma, but uh, I I think I'd love it. Yeah. I think I'd love I. I always loved uh, riding my mountain biking, and my friends and I used to long like longboard skateboard like down steep hills. So I just love the rush of just going fast and just wind in the hair, you know. <laughs> and with a motorcycle, it's so immediate because it's with a car you can pretty much zone out. With a motorcycle, you just you're you're atta- It's like the motorcycle is an extension of your body. You're you're just so in it, and you have to be so present and it's meditation. There's no room for you zone in. Yeah, you have out. to. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't want to ride with anyone who doesn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Yeah, you're a good driver. I think so. Although I crashed recently. I was coming down this hill here, or coming around our corner, and uh, Alex was walking up the road. And I was like, hey, Alex. And, <clears throat> and tried to swerve around him and hit a ditch with mud and literally crashed the bike and uh. rolled across the ground. And, I was like, man, I thought I was good at riding. It was bikes. a slow motion accident, though. Yeah, it was slow. I was probably going like ten kilometers an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seven miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, motorcycles are kind of like jujitsu. In that, like, I get into this flow space of being super tuned in, super aware of my surroundings, and yet, like, fully enjoying 
the rush and the movement and the spaciousness and the openness and the freedom and it's yeah that's i'm gonna find liberation through a motorcycle yeah well i think it's totally possible did you ever read that book it was zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance yeah i didn't (laughs) i i think it's kind of about that huh uh but i I think it was also about like fixing his bike himself rather than mechanic doing so just getting really into it i read it so long ago i don't remember but it's it's one of those one of those spiritual books for like people young younger people you know it's yeah. the story you know i bought one book kind of early on in my spiritual journey it was like um what was it buddhism for rebels ooh and it was <laughs> it was the most exciting spiritual book I had ever read because I'd only been reading the Book of Mormon and the Bible for ah. years and years and years. And then I have this book that's like, it's saying fuck and shit and excuse my language, but it was just, it was very freeing. It was your gateway, huh? It was my gateway book into higher spirituality, I guess. Who, do you know who wrote that book? I can look it up. I wonder if it, if it was Noah something. Here, I'll, I will look it up right now. All right. And then I want to ask you about Mormon. Mormons. Were you pretty immersed in that world? Very. I was born and raised. Were you, like, into it? Of course, yeah. I mean, for a long time, I mean, I remember making fun of people who were smokers. Like, oh, they don't know how stupid they are because they're, they're killing themselves and they're, like, how stupid do you look? You, know, just... you had that voice, too, back then? if i did that would be even better but i I remember being very judgmental and that was a main thing i really realized in that religion and i'm sure it's in a lot of religions where there was this judgmental mentality around just people who are not of the same mindset or Mm -hmm. religion and it was so strong and it was like to me it was counter to the teachings that they were giving us in Sunday school or up on the stand of like, Oh, we should love everyone and be compassionate. And for me, it was, it was just very hypocritical. Mm. And, and seeing that kind of at a young age. Um, but also I remember one particular experience in Sunday school where my teacher or the Sunday school teacher said, and God created everything. God created the earth and there was nothing before God. And I was like, how, how is that possible? How who, is nothing who, possible? Who created God? And it started to make my head spin a bit, and I'm kind of feeling a bit weird. I'm like, wait, but was it just a blank piece of paper in the beginning, and then somebody started writing stuff down, and eventually God appeared out of that? What is the, was there an answer, like a, an answer from the teachers or whatever for that question? Or is that a question you just don't ask? That was, I mean, I got scolded for asking that question mm-hmm. it, because it was outside the barrier of yeah. There's a there's a there's a finite barrier to these things, and that's that's what was frustrating about Mormonism for me. It was there was always a line. There were certain lines everywhere. And they weren't really visible, but you could you could cross them by asking a question very quickly, mm-hmm. like what was before God, or if Adam and Eve had two sons. Well, how did they populate the whole earth? Is that the story? They had two sons? They only had two sons. Cain and Abel. Oh, there's a hole in the story. Is there an explanation? 
there's no explanation. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that I mean I, that I know of now. I'm, it's been so long since I've been. I'm sure there is. Yeah. But if they had two sons, how? I, I don't know. What I eventually started to rationalize was okay. Adam and Eve were a sect of people, not just two people. Oh, interesting. Like they were a whole group of people, you know, and they eventually populated together. So there were groups of people before there were just two people. So the Garden of Eden was like a party and the whole party. In in, in my world, in my That's how you make it work. Yeah, that's how it, it works. But if, if, if you go by the Bible, there's Cain and Abel and Cain murders Abel. So then there's only one and he goes and wanders the earth for forever with this mark of the beast on his head so forth and so on and does he find a woman mm. but they create canaanites so he must so there must be other people on earth this th- but this these were the questions that drove oh, me wow. nuts because i'm like if this is the beginning of us and here's adam and eve just adam and eve that they don't say anybody else there's just adam and eve and they get together and they eat the fruit and they leave the garden and they have two kids and they're both boys and then the earth is populated. There's the line. Interesting. And there was no explanation beyond that. Huh. So one of the explanations I think I remember hearing is they had daughters too, but then that would mean incest of sorts. Uh-huh. Um, which could make sense. I mean, yeah, as the bloodline eventually thins out and whatever, like we can populate a whole generation of people. I, I'm not sure, but... Interesting. So yeah, there's these invisible lines that kind of yeah threw me for loops. So you found that book, and I guess you kind of you gradually moved away from the religion. Or well, was there an epiph- Was there just was there a sudden moment, or was it a gradual? This is not feeling right. Uh, it was a slow burn. Uh-huh. I remember a buddy of mine. We were on the school bus home. And uh, he pulls out a little baggie from his pocket. And he goes, look, man, look what I got. And he's a Mormon, too. And I look at him I'm like, what's that? And he goes, it's marijuana. Mm. And I smell it. And I giggled for like 20 minutes straight. Just from smelling it? Just from smelling it. <laughs> it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> but think of being like a Mormon. You're super sensitive to anything. I haven't had anything bad in my system. And, uh, and then that summer, I went... Uh, with my friends for a vacation, a summer vacation into Nags Head and North Carolina. Um, and they pulled out a bong. I was like, mm. And had you smoked yet at that point? No. Never. I was like, mm. so I like took the a devil, semi the devil's hit. in you. Like, I, come on, man. I took like a semi hit. <laughs> I took like a baby hit. And then there's a picture of me somewhere on the internet of me sitting on the couch just eyes wide as a marowl staring at the TV. And that was my first experience being high. Wow. And from then I was questioning everything. I actually had my first drink of alcohol that night too. Uh-huh. Because I was like, well, that didn't kill me. I'm okay. I'm all right. <laughs> so alcohol so, must not be that bad. Yeah. And then marijuana was the gateway drug, I guess, huh? <laughs> it, it truly was. <laughs> and so did you, did you, did you ever go through a phase of, so you walked kind of gradually away from Mormonism. Did you become less spiritual? Huh. The book, you're showing me the book, it's by Dzogchen Ponlop, Rebel Buddha. We'll put that in the notes. Yep. Cool, man. I'll put a link in there because it's actually a really good book. Yeah. 
Say uh, that again. Yeah, did you, I'm just curious, uh, after you stepped away from that religion or started to question it, did you go through a phase of more like atheism or you just didn't believe in anything or did you quickly or j just move into your own spirituality? Initially, I rejected all things religious. That didn't mean I rejected spirituality. Or, or an idea of God. Or, or an idea of God. God was always there in the back of my mind. I just didn't think it was a man sitting on a throne judging me. And that was very clear that that's not what God was. Whether that's true or not, I really can't answer that. But <laughs> mm. um, I mean, we can now, maybe. God's within you, man. Yeah. But, yeah, I think, and especially with Jesus, like, I always had this this love for Jesus and not it, it evolved over the years from being this being I worship to being this being I should try and live like mm. genuinely not like I'm going to be a Christ but like actually he's, he's saying some pretty valid things like I don't want to mm -hmm. be mean to my neighbors I don't want to do this I, you know um, forgive people now it's it's a higher ideal like the ultimate spirituality of Jesus was a very high ideal. Like you were saying in another podcast about um, the Course in Miracles and how forgiveness wasn't like what Jesus said. Like if you could explain that again, it was like letting go to such a degree. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I said it then. <laughs> Am I? But essentially what I what I learned from that teaching is it's not necessarily about uh, forgiving the person who harmed me, like very specific. It was about forgiving myself and forgiving. Yeah. It's like a, a letting go of all attachments to thoughts and judgments of just this reality, the nature of the mind really, really in line with a lot of Buddhist teachings, just said in a different way. Uh, that was essentially what I got from it. Uh, I mean, th that book goes really deep and I read, I didn't read the whole course of miracles. I read a book that was about the course of miracles. So it was a guy in a very entertaining way explaining the teaching the way he received it. And, uh, I mean, essentially it's hard to explain the book's amazing. It's called, uh, disappearance of the universe. And the way he explained it is that we, so there is, God is, is oneness. It's pure oneness. There are no thoughts. It's just a love oneness, pure love. And in that oneness, there was a thought. And the thought was, what would it be like to be separate from this? What would it feel like to have my own experience? That was a thought. And essentially, in a very clear way that I can't articulate, uh, it explains that we are experiencing that thought and our whole journey of this incarnation is to forgive the thought because the thought, as soon as it happened, it came with a guilt for having separated from God. And I think in the Bible, I've never really read the Bible, but in the Bible somewhere it says that um, something about the father, like ready to welcome his children back home or something like that. I don't, I don't know if it's in those words exactly. It's definitely not, but, but essentially it's up to us 
to return home. Like God isn't, God has the door wide open and it's, it's up to us to forgive this thought and forgive this existence to return to the father, to God. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Which to me makes more sense and it actually feels more spiritual in the sense that it's, it's actually make, it's forcing me to think in a different way. Mm. <clears throat> with like, what I feel with organized religion, especially Mormonism is that it makes you think linearly or literally, you know, there's people who live by the word of the book to the, to the T. And if you live by the word of the book of the Bible to the T, slavery is okay. Killing your neighbors. Okay. If you need to, um, adultery is horrible. Gays are horrible. It's just, there's a lot of really kind of dark elements to the Bible. Um, but I like that explanation of forgiveness because it makes me think more of like Zen koans. Like, what is it like to knock on the sky? Whoa. Or what is it like? What What is the sound of one hand clapping? Mm-hmm. And it, it, what Zen, this is where Buddhism really attracted me is because it was getting me to see a tangible edge of spirituality within Mormonism. It felt so far above me and far away from me and within a hierarchy that I could never, ever touch, mm. which is similar to a lot of religions where there's always a, you know, there's a priest or a preacher or a whatever who's above you, who they're the direct contact to God. And you're supposed to sit there and obey and listen. And yeah, it seems a lot of religion, mass religion is, it's not an experiential teaching. It's more like, this is what is said in the book and this is how it is. And I mean, I, I was pretty non-spiritual or I believed there was probably some kind of higher power, but I didn't know. And I didn't, I wasn't, didn't grow up religious at all. And it was through plant medicine uh, that I found a real spirituality. It was like through experience uh, rather than taking a book for its word and just, you know, I think that's why a lot of religions don't really complete the work of helping a person to realize themselves and in, in their true nature because it's it's pretty much an intellectual process through books and through preachers and what they say and a lot of I, I, I am I don't doubt that some people in religions have very visceral real experiences but the majority of people just don't have access to that and so their whole spiritual foundation is very fragile because it's based on a book and it's up to their mind to choose to believe it or not rather than really experience the teaching. And, and now that after plant medicines, now when I hear some of these concepts that are in religion, it's particularly in Christianity. Like I've kind of really embraced it, even though I haven't read the Bible, but embraced, um, some of the teachings and values and they really make a lot of sense to me through my own personal experiences with plant medicines and how they open me up to, to look within myself and realize where it is in my life that I'm not living in alignment with what is good and what is natural. And, and, uh, but I found that 
it's like I had those experiences with plant medicine and then I checked in with religions and a lot of them, those fundamental teachings really align, but I had to experience it to now look at those religions and be like, and for me, particularly Christianity and a lot of those teachings, uh, now I'm like, wow, that's pretty spot on and it provides a pretty solid framework, but there's a missing element of that experience. So if you combine some of these religions with plant medicine, it's like, oh, then there's some of them, some, some of the aspects of them. I think some of them might be misleading people, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely went into the extreme in first leaving the religion or Mormonism of like all religions are mind control. Maybe. You know, a lot of the elements that I experienced personally through Mormonism were very mind control-esque. You know, like I said, seeing the world and seeing how people are and judging them. My my worldview was tainted or covered by the shell of it should look like this and don't ever go to this side. And it was very limiting <clears throat> till I took psychedelics. That like the mind control aspect, you know. I wonder. It seems like a lot of religions, their origin story. For example, Jesus, like, perhaps like he he was legitimately saying really true and valid and important things, right? And then the mind control element came afterwards when people were writing it down, and then it's almost like the game of telephone. The message kind of just gets distorted after uh, over the generations. And maybe there were some that just felt that hum- most human beings just weren't capable uh, to realize these things. And so they had to create all these rules and they had to create all this structure and rules to keep human beings on the right path. And however they perceive that to be, because they didn't trust in the average human being to find that themselves uh, or to abide by the teachings. So they needed to create rule. They need to create fear. Basically how a lot of people would raise a child. It's like, if you do this, you're going to be punished, you know, so, so with the, the threat of punishment essentially. And that's, I think a lot of, uh, where a lot of Christianity went towards, um, uh, you know, this idea of you'll, you'll be punished and judged. Whereas I think Jesus was kind of teaching that the judgment, I, this is how I connect with Jesus. His teaching was that the judgment is your own and you, God is forgiveness and only that, and you can tune into that and you can forgive yourself. And if you truly forgive yourself, then the urge to, to cause any harm to anyone will go away because all the harm that we cause and the judgments we do on others, it comes stems from within, it stems from a judgment within ourselves. And so if I hate myself, odds are, if I'm not aware of it, I'm going to take it out on others. And so you look at the worst you know, the most atrocious criminals in history, pretty sure you can always look at them. And if you want to analyze them, they fucking hate themselves and they didn't know what to do with that. Not to, not that it's okay, but you know, I think Jesus would even have forgiven them. (laughs) He would say you, if you forgive yourself, you'll, you'll, you won't do this stuff anymore. You know? Yeah. The self hate piece is potent. Mm-hmm. That's such a yeah. Because if you think about, I I if I hate this being, or I hate my body, or I hate my mind, or I hate my actions, 
I'm going to hate everything else because this is the only thing that is connected to everything else. So it can seem like such a small thing. And it's, it's interesting because it slips into so many different things of like body shaming and, and I don't know, sexual orientation shaming and color shaming, all this shit. Uh, kind of even within media, I'm thinking of like women's magazines of like, you know, you got to look like this and have the best abs in three weeks. And it's just like it's constantly shaming the feminine or the masculine body. And so we start to like kind of slowly dislike ourselves, mm-hmm. dislike our appearance, dislike how we interact with the world. Or those magazines, you know, their purpose is to sell copies, right? And so they're selling to, if it's a women's magazine, they're selling to women who hate themselves or hate their body on some level. It might not be crazy. Hate could amount, be even a strong but it's word like, in that. It's playing into that, and and uh, there's almost a, a draw to to find a justification for that self hatred. It's like, oh, like look at that that guy. He's so successful, and he's he's on top of the world. He's got a ton of money, beautiful woman, all this stuff, and like, so I'm lacking something. And so there's that self hatred. Like I'm lacking. I'm not complete as I am, which is not true um but that's how a lot of things are sold it's sold to fill that void where we feel we're lacking and if we buy this thing we'll we'll somehow fill that but it's not net it can only be filled by recognizing it and buy a bigger tv a bigger house a better car yeah you'll feel happy yeah back to the mind control aspect of the of religion i i think what was happening especially around the area of jesus is that the Roman Empire itself was a mess. Like, it was a pigsty. You know, there was a lot of... Like, prostitution was very normalized. There was Debauchery. The, the debauchery, perfect. Hedonism. Hedonism. Them hedons. <laughs> but, uh, and so the government, or the... At that point, the god, the government, was failing. They, they, they saw, oh, okay, you're, you're pretty human... And you're not able to rule us justly. So they had to make something higher. So it's like even, okay, say maybe in a thousand years we kill God. And then there's something above God. We create a whole other, there's a super alien that's working a a simulation for us. That's built this massive supercomputer and we live inside of it. There's our new God, a new hierarchy. And this is where I felt the the limitation and the mind control aspect was there was always a hierarchy when in reality I can, I I just didn't believe in hierarchy. The hierarchy, it seems, um, it fills the need for people to have a parents, a father and a mother tell them what's right and what's wrong. And I forgot where I was going with this, but like when I say that now, when I look at religion and some, some of what's taught in like in Christianity, I understand where it might've been coming from. So for example, like the idea of sin and it's, you know, for, for a very conservative Christian, it's, it's sinful to have sex before being married or it's sinful to have a child before being married or it's sinful to take drugs, or it's sinful this and that. And when I look at the 
the value of that teaching. It's basically saying that these things on on the overall, it's basically saying that certain immediate gratifications don't lead to any long term relief or or realization. I think it's true, and maybe I'm wrong, but from what I perceive in my own life experience, uh, uh, for example, like having a really promiscuous life and having sex with a lot of different people, it doesn't ultimately solve anything, and I'm still left in the same place of my suffering, or uh, drugs, or you know, any any of those things that, that that a conservative Christian would say is is evil, and you'll go to hell for. Uh, I think there's value in realizing that those things aren't going to lead to any reduction in suffering. Uh, but again, it's taught that that branch of Christianity. It's taught that you'll be punished and you need to feel guilty about it. And you need to repent and all of that. Uh, but I think the, the, the initial teaching, they could have maybe worded it differently. Like I think a more like mindful approach to wording that would just be to say, listen, you, you do whatever you want. But these activities, you know, we human beings have existed for thousands and thousands of years. There's a lot of experience that's been documented. And we know from countless evidence repeated over and over that these things while they might give you immediate satisfaction, they will let you down and they will not bring you to a place of feeling peace within. And that's the Bible I would, you know, I want to read, you know, like I think that's useful because, but I only, I had to learn these things through experience and I think that's the best teacher experience with intention. If my intention is to learn from my experiences, that's truly the best teacher. And, and I have faith that all human beings can, learn that way if 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 we had a, a new religion emerge and it was the religion of experience is the teacher and the religion also shared you know listen these things won't work but go ahead and try and you'll see and, and you, you know if you feel guilty that's on you you can feel guilty about it if you want but you'll see it won't work and um communion would be a tab of acid what's that communion would be a tab <laughs> yeah. of acid. yeah yeah yeah, totally. Or re, re, if you want to repent, just eat eat some mushrooms, and you'll forgive yourself. You might have a really hard time until you do, but once you do, you'll feel relief. <laughs> and you go to church once a week <clears throat> and take a heroic dose of mushroom until you realize that you are one <laughs> and everything's okay. The church of the mushroom, yeah. I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I just think there was a... In Christianity, at least, I haven't really gone deep in any religion, but Christianity is the one I've recently just kind of really looked at a bit without reading the Bible, but just listening to teachers and understanding some of the core values and teachings in it. And I think they started from a really a good place, which is basically saying that there are things, if, you're, if your intention in life is to uh, find peace, and I mean real, true, deep peace that uh, that is probably beyond any imagination of what it is but it's just a, the deepest peace if that's your goal then there are things that work and things that don't work and things that will stray you off that path and you'll have to find your way back so the path is laid out yeah <clears throat> there's a a quote in a book by robert anton wilson called prometheus rising <clears throat> and he talks about I'm not going to quote the quote 100%, but he talks about... Oh, actually, sorry. It's Robert Bly. Other Robert. Robert Bly is amazing. There's a great book for, for 
anyone out there listening, which is called Iron John. Iron John changed my life, changed my mentality. It's a book about men. Um, but the first lines in the book, it says, Oh, you walker, know that the path is always under your foot. It's always where you're walking. It doesn't matter where you are. You are always walking the path. Mm. That's it. Robert Blight, I, w- I watched a, an interview he did with Bill Moyer in the 80s. Bill Moyer seemed to have done all these amazing interviews. Um, but the one with Robert Blight. Think on, aloud. I didn't see that one, but I did. I saw the one he did with, um, what's his name, who talked about the hero's journey. Um, anyway. Uh, Campbell? Yeah, Joseph Campbell, amazing, that interview. But on YouTube, you can also find Robert Bly, interviewed by Bill Moyer, and it's amazing. And it's so, this is done in like 1980 or something. And uh, if you strip away the the old school clothing styles and all the men had beards, uh, it's so relevant today. Like, this issue is so relevant today. We've lost our way. I mean, as as a generalization of what it, means to be a man in terms of i think on a spiritual path like man he nails it spot on it's relevant to this day and they were facing a lot of the same confusion and issues that we face today you know so he 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 yeah he's a pretty brilliant guy he he did some incredible research on why men fail to be men or why there's so many issues in modern society and <clears throat> he brought up a story this is a fun tangent. He brought up a story uh, of the Native Americans. And in the Native American community, you're given different colors based on your age and your maturity. So <clears throat> men start out from the red stage. We go to the white stage and then the black stage. Women start out in the white stage. They go into the red stage and end in the black stage. So we both end in the same stage. But men who are in this red stage, which is usually until you're about 29 and a half, 30, they weren't allowed to go to war. They were never allowed to participate in war because in the red stage, it's more of an egoic stage. It's more of like a, a male rage stage. It's more of a, a it's a base stage. It's more of a, a lower level. <clears throat> and so when men finally turned into the white stage, which is white stage is like a philosophical stage, it's where you start to have questions about life, about God, about this. This is where you become initiated. Um, then you can actually go to war, which is very interesting. And he said, well, why is it that all of our army soldiers, they're all 18, 19, 20, like they're super young, and they're killing people? Man, that's that's genius. Ugh, man. I mean, I just look at what's going on in the States now. It's it's complex, but a lot of this is driven. A lot of the the kind of the the darker aspects of the violence and the protests, but the violent side of it, I guess, uh, it's it's exactly that. It's males in their twenties, and I I was that guy before, and I was really pissed off at the at well, I didn't realize it at myself, but I projected it onto the world and my country and. Thought we had to tear the whole fucking thing down. That's what I saw. And tear it down. Tear it down, and it's exactly it. And I think most, and I mean, most revolutions in history were probably led by young people. It's always about students, you know, rising up. And I guess there's value to it. 
because sometimes we need we need to start over but also there's a lot of misguided it's just like i'm 25 i, I know everything and i'm angry i'm angry and i'm gonna make it i'm gonna make a change you know and uh i think that's really crucial and that comes back to something we talked about is initiation and perhaps like an initiation is a process that can lead a man from that red status to the white status it's a realization of our mortality and the fragile nature and the importance of some of the structures that we built to actually guide us in our own journey through life but that's that's the key element and not to give away the book robert bly because you have to read it listeners um but that's a key element in the book is what he's saying is lacking for men spiritually is that we are just in general we are lacking male initiation in some countries around the world, in some indigenous communities, they still continue this tradition of male initiation. He spoke of one in Africa where the, when the boys reach a certain age, they come into the house and they steal the boy out of the house from the mother. And they bring him out into the middle of the woods in the night and they're all wearing masks and they start to beat up the kid. But they make the kid fight back. And as the kid fights back and fights back, they let him win. And after he wins, they take off the mask and put the mask on him. That's cool. Yeah, I heard him talk about that and he even said that the mothers play a role in it. So the mothers, they, they make a big scene like they're coming to steal the child and that's what the child feels like. But the mothers know about this the whole time. They're planning for it. And so the mothers act out like, no, don't take my child. But they're actually, they know this is important, but they make a really big scene out of it. And it's very, very symbolic. It's, it's becoming a man, becoming separated your own being from your mother, you know, and, uh, and so many of us don't go through that. And so many men never leave that stage <laughs> or maybe they do late in life or maybe they don't. Uh, that's really, really lacking <laughs> and important. Well, think, think culturally now it's a bit more acceptable to be a 40 year old man still living at home. Yeah. I know several 40-year-old men that still live with their mother at home. Mm -hmm. and, and their relationship with their mother is still very much a child-mother relationship. Yeah. It's very dependent. So in, in this process of initiation, what the male is lacking or the, <clears throat> the masculine is lacking is a clear boundary between boy and man. And so if we never get that cut or severed or killed or whatever the symbol is, we will always be boys. And we will always fight and we will always look for X, Y, and Z to destroy and take down. And, and that's the red stage. And it can go on as long as it needs to until we finally reach a white stage. And so then what, when, what the last stage is black stage? What is that? Death. Oh, that's, that's the end. It's, it's not the end like that. Um, certain comedians who are very much in the black stage, uh, George Carlin, uh, Bill Hicks. They wore a lot of black. Their humor is a bit dark. It's a bit, it's it's got an edge to it. And they have they don't give a shit what they're they saying. They don't give a shit. They they have started to approach an older age and have accepted or come to terms with or started to greet death in some form or another. And this is actually where the best comedy comes from is from the black stage because it's so real. It's raw. It's the stuff most of us are afraid to say. There's a so is, is it almost like. It's an overcoming of the fear of death. Or Maybe not overcoming. It's just it's, you're approaching it, and in that approaching of the death, 
you're able to you just start to accept it it's not you haven't you haven't beaten it you know it's coming and yeah so you can taste it so that leads you to let go of all your fears in right a, a lot of the fears at least in an ideal you world don't give a fuck yeah you say what you, f- you think and feel and that's that's beautiful and i think that within this grander symbol of red white and black i think we all go through red white and black stages especially in medicine paths or spiritual paths like we have to go through these smaller cycles of the same thing over and over and over again I mean, yeah, the microcosm is in the macros. It's they're they're reflecting each other. It doesn't mean that we have to reach, you know, eighty years old to be in the black stage. You can hit it now. Or you can hit the white stage now. But getting through the red stage is the hardest part. And that's where we need a callus or a catalyst, sorry, uh, such as psychedelics or a crazy hike through the mountains by yourself or something. A vision quest. A vision quest. These these things that push the boundary of death very close to you. And so for women, that's interesting that women start in the white. Which is why women mature faster than men. So white being uh, the philosophical state. Uh, it's a bit different. I mean, it's still a, like a <clears throat> philosophical, maybe emotional maturing state. It's like a, it's a basically a state of intelligence. It's like we we don't really get smart until we're men don't really get smart until we're about thirty. Yeah. Hey, you welcome to the club, man. Hey, man. You're cool. smart now, dude. Thanks, man. It took me a long time. I've been smart for ten years. <laughs> been stupid all this time. <laughs> um, but for uh, yeah, for women, I'm not. I don't want to try and say I know anything about that. I think for women, they naturally know the red stage is over so quick for them because they know when they become a woman. There's a physical reaction. Right. Oh, so it's it's when they like when they get their period, like yeah. I mean, that's when women know they were they've gone from a girl to a woman physically. It, so that would that be red stage to white stage, like at that point? Mm, no, they're already because it happens at in that early stage. Yeah, that's their white stage. They're already achieving that maturation uh-huh. within that stage. It's like for us. For men, we don't really reach. We that don't have our, phys- our body doesn't indicate it to us. It doesn't. So we just kind of like, oh, I got pubes. The balls drop. The balls drop. My voice gets a little bit deeper. But it's nothing dramatic. It's not like no. Yeah. Oh wow. So this is why men, in his theory, <clears throat> need to be initiated because we were like, well, I don't know. Shit, I, I asked that question so many times. Whereas women, nature initiates them. I mean, their body. Their body does it. it. Does it? Yeah, I mean, and then I guess the effectiveness of that initiation depends on their support and their guidance and their. And typically, and and Robert Bly was probably from I don't know sixties seventies. Typically, the woman did have a large support group of women who knew what was coming and what would happen and how to handle it. Men, we, I don't. I didn't really get a talk. I don't know. I never got a talk. Right. Most most of us didn't. If I did it when in one year while out the other wasn't I wasn't ready for it. I got the talk from plants, man. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, ayahuasca will give you that talk or wachuma or any plant. Yeah. And they'll talk to you. Um Yeah, and tying that in kind of back into this Mormonism religious thing. I could see how my fighting this religion initially 
fighting this religion was fighting that. I'm fighting an authoritative figure. And that wasn't spirituality either. So, like, I just, I kept getting into these little, like, loopholes of, like, wow, okay, wait. But now I'm just attacking myself again. Now I'm attacking a structure again. Now I'm looking for a structure again. So I had to find something that had no structure but still had a structure. Hmm. Plants. Plants provide it. I look forward to the black stage. <laughs> I th- I think you you have already touched it. You've done a boga. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've done psychedelics. Yeah. You you touch you touch upon it often. Yeah, I find myself caring less about it's still a work in progress for sure, but uh looking back on 5 years ago or 7 years ago or 10 years ago uh, there is less concern and there's certainly, I, I certainly consider death a lot more now. I meditate on it so, sometimes unintentionally. It just comes to me and, uh, kind of like at the, hopefully just the halfway point of my life, but I kind of seeing that I'm, I'm approaching the top of the hill and now it's like, I'm starting to see that the death on the horizon, you know, uh, and feeling the impact of that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, not quite George Carlin, but... Uh, you still got jokes. <laughs> still got, you still got jokes. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, that's... that's. I I love that way of... That metaphor, the, or the way Robert Bly explains that. It's very... Feels very relevant and true, and I think it points to a lot of... Why our world is in the state that it's in right now. It's just a lot of the elements and the guidance to go through those states are missing. And people, we've lost our connection to, to that, to the ceremonial aspect of these different stages of life. And a lot of us are just lost and without really any direction and without any, uh, and all these emotions are within us and this rage and and we mindlessly without knowing because we don't know project it out on the world and it's just a shit show because of it so this is why i think we need we're missing our elders yeah we're missing our elders in so many different ways and we don't even realize how much we're missing them i did there was another example of a black stage person and it was uh Abraham Lincoln. He was in the black stage when he was president. And I mean, I don't know I was never alive during that time. I can't I can read history books and say he was this way or that way, but it, he sounded like he was a good leader in many aspects. But the way Robert Bly knew he was in the black stage or the way they could see that was a young man broke into his house, into the White House, and pounded on his door and, and woke him up and was, like, freaking out. He needed help with his mother or something like this. And basically his guards came in, and they're like, we're going to have to kill you. And even though this man broke a terrible law, Abraham Lincoln was like, no, 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 it's cool. You know, like, he didn't say it's cool. Maybe he did. No, it's okay. He, I understand his pain, and I need to go see his mother. 
instead of killing him. Uh huh. So he saw clearly. He probably said, "That's okay. I need to see his mother." Yeah. Wow. It's on a side note. It's actually true that back then, the public could you could go up to the White House and knock on the door. When Teddy Roosevelt was inaugurated, I read his biography. It was amazing. He he invited Washington D.C. Whoever wanted to come, they could come into the White House to celebrate the inauguration. It was not invitation. I don't think people were even searched. And he shook everybody. It was his in, intention to shake every single person's hand that showed up there. There was just this direct contact. It was like no no wall between the people and the leader. He was like with them. And that's how it was. I mean, I guess society was so different back then. Uh, but you could walk in, you could walk to the, you could knock on the door of the White House. Mr. President, I need to talk to you. Imagine that today. Oh my God. Oh my Lord. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is the time to open the door right now for any president. No. But I think that's where true democracy stood you stood on the there was no hierarchy i mean sure you're the you're a leader but in that stage it was like a healthy leader of being the one pulling the wagon and help you know hey you guys come help me drag this rope this way and we'll pull this wagon this way not where it is now where it's a guy sitting on top of a a wagon i don't know if you've seen this meme a guy sitting on top of the wagon yelling at people hey you should pull harder pull harder pull harder Instead of him being in the front, pulling the yeah, hardest. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, he, he was in the military for a while, and he was, like, commanding a, a brigade or whatever, and uh, there was some battle, I think, maybe in Cuba or something, and he led the charge. He was already a big deal at that point. He was already, like, known in the whole country. He wasn't yet president. But he led the charge. He was taking fire himself. That's... I mean, I think that should be a rule for any war. If you're going to go to war, if you're going to declare war as a leader, you got to be the first, like the leader should duke it out. You know, like, the, <laughs> like put your mouth, money, mouth, whatever, money, mouth where your money is, money where money your mouth, where your mouth is. is. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like put your skin in the game. I, I totally agree. And I know that idea is not new, but if a country wants to go to war with each other, the, the leaders of each country should stand at the front line at, or at least be there in some aspect fighting yeah all the, all the leaders of the world would be in jujitsu classes <laughs> and because right now i think putin i think we talked about this maybe putin would probably win all the wars apparently he's like a ju- pretty he's badass like judo belt, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he probably kick i get a feeling trump wouldn't do so well in a in a, in a, in a one-on-one yeah, fight i don't think so <laughs> he has a lot of energy but with his mouth yeah (laughs) maybe he could talk his way out of it i don't know (laughs) yeah it makes me think of a a quote from chase uh he says if you ask anyone if they can fight any guy if they can fight they'll say yes right away but if you hand them a guitar and ask them to play stairway to heaven most of them be like i can't play the guitar why is it that we say we can fight but we don't say we can play guitar. We don't want to get our ass kicked. We want to. I would say I. Now that I've started jujitsu and I'm a beginner, I'm happy to say that I don't know how to fight. Because <laughs> we know quite a bit more. Well, yeah, but I, I know that I don't know. You know, like I know I'm a very basic level. I've never been in a fist fight in my life. You know, so. Uh, but that's the beauty of jujitsu. For me, 
is it's helped me to get really honest with myself and even others. It's like a reality check in terms of that very basic reptilian fundamental. Can I defend myself against another human being? And, uh, it's really humbling in a beautiful way, man. I absolutely, this is, this is up there with the best things I've done in my life. And I, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I, it's, it's a meditation. It's my body feels so good, even though it's sore, but it's, I just feel so in my body and there's so much philosophy behind it. That's unspoken, but it's just so it's basically, you're cutting down to the core essentials of life and death. You're getting past all the bullshit because most talk between strangers, a lot of ways, if you analyze like two people meet on the street, there's a little bit of aggression. It's basically, it's, it's, it's trying to establish dominance through words. That's what we're doing. And jujitsu is like, let's get past all the talk and let's just do this, you know, and, and see where we're at. It's a great equalizer. Yeah. This this is funny because this ties into everything we've spoken about today. Is Fight Club. Ah, yeah. Fight Club, I mean, I think about it every time we have a group class. Because I can see how jujitsu is changing us in such an amazing way. Like bringing just a certain level of clarity that sure plant medicine brings to us, but this is such a physical, tangible, in-your-face thing. And man, when you're pinned by Chase and he he's going for something, it's... it's Chase is our dear friend and our teacher, teacher. black belt. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like facing a semi-truck and with nowhere to go. And you're facing, you know, not... He's not going to kill us, but you're in some senses we're facing a, a, a taste of death. Because being choked, man, it's not it's not fun. You're starting to lose, you know, everything kind of gets a bit hazy and things get a bit muffled. Yeah. You get close to you get close to death, and yeah, and and this this is where Fight Club is, man. It's it has a really powerful philosophy for men and for everyone in general. It's this like there's a a line in it that says losing all hope is freedom. Absolutely. All the, all the illusory hope. And in fight club, if I remember correctly, it's kind of a symbolic story about going into the black stage that you talked about because Edward Norton's character is like trying to lead this cookie cutter corporate life and all this stuff. And he gets into fight club and you know, as the movie goes on, he starts to not give a fuck and he starts to just, I mean, (laughs) he goes off the rails, but he, he loses that concern for what others think and he you know he he embodies himself he becomes free there's a a scene in fight club it's closer to the end they're driving in a in a limo they've just left a, a banquet where they've tied up one of the commissioners and they've threatened him they've told him look do not fuck with us and they get in this car and Tyler Durden and Edward Norton or Brad Pitt and Edward Norton sitting in the front and they're having a conversation which is basically just Edward Norton talking to himself and there's people in the back and Tyler Durden's driving or Brad Pitt he's driving and Edward Norton keeps grabbing the wheel 
keeps grabbing the wheel. He's like, oh, man, stop. Like, you got to be careful. You got to be, st- st- man, stop. Like, you're going to kill us. And Tyler's just like, okay, man, okay. And Tyler, <clears throat> he lets go of the wheel. He pushes the gas down. They go a bit faster. They're starting to go into, swerve into oncoming traffic. Edward Norton reaches over. He's like, stop, come on. And he goes, um, Tyler Durden goes, look at you. Look at you. You're fucking pathetic. Let go. Let go. And man, that that scene for me was so pivotal. 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 Even in jujitsu. Even in medicine work. Where I'm pushing and I'm grabbing the wheel every five seconds trying to make life look a certain way. I can keep grabbing and I keep like, shit, it should be this way. I should sound this way. I should be this way. I should look this way. And I kept grabbing that wheel. And then I, I just hear Tyler Durden just, let go. That's the teach. That's what Jesus said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. It ties in together, man. And when I reflect, all my favorite movies that I can think of have that theme of basically the the hero of the movie finding that liberation essentially that black stage another one that comes to mind is office space oh my you know and so he he went about a different way it was through a botched hypnotism but basically he goes from a corporate slave fear of his boss to just losing all care and concern and that's he finds his deep peace he embodied it so well too that i forget the actor's name but Man, it was brilliant. And those movies, I love them because when I every time I watch them, I feel this release. Like it's like that's the hero's journey coming to a completion. It's like finding that peace, like that dying, dying to all of our resistances. And and another one that comes to mind is Gladiator. I've loved, I've always loved that movie, right? And that's a little more on the macho, like fighting. But but by the end, he doesn't care. He's 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 okay to die. And and it makes him a better fighter. And the only way he loses is because he gets stabbed in the back. But he dies like with peace, total peace, because he found that on his journey. Uh, a- absolutely brilliant. It's it, like there's so many stories in, in movies. If they follow that hero's journey script, uh, it's basically the reason we love those movies. I love those movies is because it's there's something deep within me that really, I for some reason, it just feels so right. Like that's 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 the journey of life and that's that's where i want to go too uh is to find that that liberation that's what joseph campbell was all about too he just found that same story in so many mythological stories from so many different cultures they're all pointing towards the same thing and the story of of jesus is just is one aspect of that he was he was a teacher of that but it's played out in so many lives and so many stories and i really think it that's Sometimes I think I don't know what the hell life is. I don't know what it is, but if I want to give it a meaning and a structure, like that's that's the one I that's what I hold on to, or that's what I follow is like it's the path to liberation, of letting go, and and it's in these movies, you know. And same with the Matrix. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just different ways of getting there. Uh, but yeah, that just liberation, letting go, and once you let go and no longer resist life, then you're in the flow. You can dodge bullets. <laughs> Everything slows down. Same with jujitsu. When I'm learning, I'm still I'm a beginner, and I f- keep finding myself resisting and panicking, and and rather than just surrendering to to the fact that there's a dude on top of me and I can barely breathe, but if I really let go and surrender to this moment, I can actually breathe, and I can find my breath, and 
as long as that next breath is there, then I'm going to keep going. And, uh, and it's, and it, you know, watching Chase, our teacher, even watching you and how you've advanced is like, that's, that's the progression of jujitsu. It's the more you let go. It's not fighting. Like I thought fighting was, which was like the more aggressive you are and the more like determined and the more force you use, the more you're going to win and the more you fight, you know, and it's, it's, that's not what the martial art is teaching It's teaching to let go and into the present moment surrender. And from there you will make the most skillful choice once you learn the moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always more to learn. Yeah. But within that, that letting go, there's this like, there's this relaxed element, you know, there's this, this, maybe that's Satori, maybe that's Samadhi or this state of bliss or peace. It's like you're, and I'm never, I'm never going to say that I've reached that in any point, but there's some moments in jujitsu where I just, I just feel so at peace. It doesn't matter if I'm having a hard time breathing or I know this person's yanking my arm across my chest and they're going to do an arm lock or something like that. I just, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> it's the least spiritual way I could put I just don't care. I'm so relaxed that it's like, I know, I know we're still playing. I know that I'm not, I'm, I don't actually want to hurt this person. This person doesn't actually want to hurt me. And that's, man, that's probably 90% of fights. Okay, maybe there's that 10% where that person is really angry and they want to come over and they want to beat the living dog shit out of somebody. Yeah. But in actuality, that person could be working out of, you know, self-preservation and so forth and so on. But there's such an element of hided, <coughs> of aggression at a, at a at a peak that if they were to both relax man these fights would go on forever there's there's such a power in this relaxed empty letting go and you mentioned the matrix and the part where neo becomes the real neo he becomes the one is when they're in the they're in the subway and an agent shows up and instead of freaking out neo just puts the phone down and looks over the agent and just gets ready to fight. He's like accepted his fate. And the only way he reaches enlightenment is he dies. They shoot him. One of the agents shoots him like 15 times. And he, he, he gets hit, right? And then something clicks where it's, he realizes he can't die. Well, he chooses that he can't die. There's a, this is an interesting symbol here. This is this is something I'm, I'm such a nerd, <laughs> such a matrix nerd. When when he gets killed by the Smith, he gets shot. He dies. He actually dies. On the other side, Trinity is there. Morpheus is there, or sorry, yeah, Morpheus is there, and they're getting attacked by these robot AI things that are ripping into their ship, the Nebuchadnezzar. But it's Trinity's kiss on the other side of the matrix that awakens him into the reality of where he really is. And Trinity is the Holy Spirit. It, it's very Christian, too. It's very Christian. <laughs> well, man, we've just gone full circle. What is the Trinity? It's uh, the Holy Trinity, uh, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus. to me, it's the mother or the, it's the, the Holy Spirit's the mother and uh -huh. then Jesus or the son or the child or the, uh -huh. the product of. So she gets ki kissed by the Trinity. He gets kissed. On the other side, 
through death. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing that someone made that story. It's so deep. And when I watched it the first time, it was when it was came out. I was like nineteen, and I didn't get any. I didn't. I didn't under, totally understand any of that. But the movie was so profound for me, like on a deep level that I couldn't consciously articulate. It just clicked. It shifted. It clicked something in me. Movies are really powerful. They're a lot of them are shit. A lot of them plant, implant a lot of st- stupid shit in our brains. I've seen it in ceremonies. What's that? Product placement. Yeah, product placement or just like values and ideas that just don't serve really. But some of them are real gems, man. And they they really, I think they can play a role in helping people on their path of liberation. Planting seeds, really. I I miss movies like that. Are there any these days? It's hard to find. I really, I had such a hard time watching new or modern movies they're just they're very a lot of them feel very shell like very empty like shell, there's there's no depth of meaning it's just if it's action movies like a mar i lo- like i like some marvel movies i think they're really cool and some of them actually do i think have a interest like some, some kind of deeper thing in it but for the most part it's it's just entertainment and it's not really thought provoking in any way like People aren't going to be sitting around 20 years from now talking about the message in uh, uh, Iron Man 3. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> or in Aqu- Aquaman. Like, man, Aquaman, man. <laughs> I've never seen it, but anyway. It's funny. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm really racking my brain right now with modern movies or within the last five, maybe five, ten years that have been like super impactful. Other than being extremely entertaining and enjoy, like, wow, cool, this is really cool. Yeah, there had to be, maybe some foreign movies. But yeah, you're right, man. The Labyrinth. When, I don't know when that came out, though. Probably not in the last 10 years. Well, there was a Labyrinth movie with David Bowie from, like, 1986 or something. Pan, Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, Sorry. Pan's Labyrinth. That was, like, 2008. That was a great one. That was it. Was mystical. It was but that was twelve years ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Say Some years things ago. have shifted in that wow. realm. They must be out there. Maybe we're like somebody's got to be making something cool. Oh, I wish. <laughs> why? Why is that? I mean, because those movies did so well. I mean, those. I think like Fight Club did really well. So I mean, if you if if movies are for making money, then those make money, <laughs> and they provide some kind of value. But they're so impactful, they can change the shapes of societies. Like Brad Pitt and Edward Norton, I think they had an interview where they were like, and it was more recent, but they said, I don't think Fight Club would ever be able to be made nowadays. It was so confrontational. Another great, well, this, like, older movies that I think that have done this in such a potent way is They Live. Oh, amazing. Yeah, where they put on the glasses and they see the billboards. What do the billboards say? Like... Obey. Obey. Yeah. yeah it sleep. Was, it was all the, the hidden messages in advertising. The radio played sleep. Sleep. The sleep. funniest part of that movie is the fight scene. They get in a fist fight that goes on for like an hour. <laughs> it's the longest fist fight in any movie. So they, they, they really gave that movie a real dose of 80s cheese. But in it, there was like uh, also very, very profound messages. And I think now that message would be kind of obvious. It's like, yeah, duh. That's what, but back then, I was really revolutionary. People weren't thinking about that back then. So potent. Yeah. So potent. Another amazing movie is Dinner with Andre. Never seen it. 
there's a, a short clip of it and I'll send it to you after this and I'll link it in, in the description of the podcast here, but it's where they're having a conversation in a bar and they're talking about New York and why New York, everyone in New York who lives there, they say they want to leave, but they just don't. I was that guy. They just, they can't. And he said, you ever thought that maybe New York is a prison built by inmates and run by inmates and everyone is is a prisoner within this system and it's 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 a very strong opinion or look at New York but some of it just clicks in a way i mean there's a there's one line in it, sorry there's one line in it it says the reason we don't leave is because we're bored and boredom is the new form of slavery the new form the newest form of mind control everybody's bored nobody wants to do anything but we're bored. It's our biggest trap. Mm-hmm. And, and man, I look at the attention spans and it, this is why it hits home so strong. I look at my own attention span. <clears throat> it's not the best, but I know I can watch a long old movie and still be somewhat entertained by it. Um, but I look at my, you know, my younger brother or my young cousins and like, man, their attention span is so short. That's mm-hmm. why these movies have to be bang, 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 gun, over. But isn't that why their their attention span is short because of that? It's like, but then that kind of leads it, into conspiracy of like a uh, intentional manipulation of because we could have maintained probably these older movies. Well, I I think maybe too in in more modern movies there have been so much advancement in psychology and understanding how the brain works, and it's like they're almost using science to 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 like take a shortcut to our stimulation centers in our brain. And it's just like, let's just go straight there. No foreplay. We're going to go straight to the dopamine and we're going to just keep pumping it, keep releasing that dopamine. Yeah, let's just, that's, you know, explosions. And so maybe there's just some kind of an over-reliance on on psychology and, and a lack of understanding that what we're, most immediately drawn to isn't useful in any way. It's just just how we're wired, and we're wired in a way that I think is very primal in that our attention is going to quickly divert to that which is most threatening to our life. Uh, danger, threat, violence, or that which is most connected to our primal desires, sex. Uh, Food. Yeah. Food, you know, whatever the case. That's why food shows are so popular. <laughs> food network, man. If you've ever scrolled through the Facebook video feed and they have like, this is the perfect dish. I, I don't know why I watch it. I can't tell you, I why, but I watch it. I don't know why I watch with my wife, but I'm the one who who initiates it. Uh, right now we're watching uh, tidying, <laughs> tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo, who wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And she's this little Japanese lady, super cute, super sweet. And she has this method for people that basically are kind of like hoarders. They just have their house is full of clutter. And she has a method to help people do the, the hardest thing, which is to let go of stuff, release it. And it's all about f- with each individual object, holding it, feeling it, and determining whether or not it brings joy. If it doesn't bring joy, then let it go. And it's fascinating, man. She's basically facilitating a purging process of people's homes like clearing it out and i i feel like it feels good at the end you see this tidy minimalist home that started as rooms and rooms and rooms stacked with shit 
you know and so <laughs> that's my stupid show right now but <laughs> it's it, good it, it ties into your your original passion which was like these these shows that had some sense of liberation in them yeah the, the, exactly the matrix and all you know that's, that's it's liberation their... from our stuff yeah. <laughs> and she has a really sweet way of of helping people do that you know because it's hard for a lot of people to let go of something even though there's no use for it and it doesn't bring joy mm. but it's just connected to a memory that we don't want to let go of but if that's it's really cool yeah there's a great comedy sketch with george carlin about stuff you have to watch it i'm, I'm gonna send it to you and i'll post it in, in the bottom too <clears throat> he's just he's like why do we like why is our main goal in life to get stuff more stuff we need more stuff or we need to get a bigger house to put our stuff in so we can have that stuff there and then we're going to go on vacation and get more stuff and bring it back to our house and then we're going to need a bigger house to fill up the stuff to, to protect the stuff that we have it's just and then we need stuff to maintain the stuff that we <laughs> yeah he just puts it in such a way yeah you just kind of we it makes you laugh at yourself the cycle man yeah. the, the infinite loop of acquisition I, i'm taurus so i understand yeah <laughs> i'm gemini so that shit makes me nervous man <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great awesome man well hey we're uh well we're at an hour 17 minutes no rush i think hour and a half is like our give or take but uh how you feeling yeah we could even wrap it up here all right that's cool. a cool place of stuff all right don't hold on to your stuff don't hold on to your stuff just let go let go look within watch the matrix let go watch the matrix watch fight club watch uh office space for a good laugh oh yes gladiator and if you know of any new movies that have a really great message, let us know. Please. Yes, we will happily watch them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, There was one last note, one more movie like that came to mind, but I forget the name. Maybe you know. I think it was from the 70s, but it, it was a movie about a, a newscaster. Uh, yeah. And he loses his shit on air and uh, starts speaking the truth. Yes. I th- yes. I know the movie. Yeah. It's a really obvious title. I want to say it's the news, newscaster. Or news. Some, anyway, I'm sure some listeners know, but that movie also was awesome. And I wish, again, so relevant. It's a 40-year-old movie, but it talk about media today. I mean, what if that happened? Like, they just drop. It's like when uh, Russell Brand went on Fox News, I think it was. I didn't see oh, that. Oh, man. He, he went on Fox News, and it was like this panel of Fox News people. I think it was Fox News. Maybe it was CNN. But they're just asking him these really stupid questions, you know, really shallow stuff. And he just is, he basically calls him out. He's like, just, I don't remember what he said. But he's basically just like, drop the facade. Let's get real here. And he starts talking like, like a real person, you know, Not, like they're asking about his fame and how his good looks and all this stuff. And he's just like, it, it's cool, man. Russell Brand's awesome. Yeah. You know who else is really good with that? Maynard James Keenan. Oh, from Tool. From Tool. Oh, yeah. If you look at his old interviews, he just, he butchers interview interviewers yeah <laughs> you're like let's get real yeah listen you're asking me the stupidest questions i've yeah. ever heard and he tells him that bob marley did that too yeah he yeah. Did. <laughs> yeah he's like don't i don't i'm not a don't interview me like i'm some kind of famous starless so you must real. have a lot of money man <laughs> what is a lot of money man <laughs> what is money what is wealth man am i happy yes i'm very happy that's wealth health is wealth Cool, man. Well, thanks. health is wealth. Health, health is wealth. All things in moderation. Plan your work. Work your plan. Dead prez. Yeah.
Let's get free. Lentil soup is mental fruit. Ginger roots is good for the youth. Fresh vegetables with the Mai Tao stew. I don't know what Mai Tao stew is. I don't either. Sweet yam fries with the green kalilu. Mm. Careful how you season and prepare your food because mm. you might lose vitamins and minerals, and that's the jewel. What comes from the ground is natural, something like that. So much wisdom in that one. That's a great one. Wu-Tang has one says, you got to read the label. Always read the label. Read the label. He says it like four times. <laughs> know what you're putting in your body. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Ciao.